Okay, it's never too late to start a class. Welcome. Sorry, I've been off the grid for a few, for over a week. I was traveling, Baruch Hashem, my son, um, got engaged. Wonderful, wonderful, special girl. Student of mine back from high school. Um, so traveled to New York and then did a Shabbaton in Texas over Shabbos. And then we had a wedding in Texas and Dallas. And uh, I was planning to give the share on Monday night. Uh, but um, for some reason, it just didn't come together for me. And I, whatever. So at least we're here now Thursday night. And now tonight I'm starting late because I gave another class. You might have, those who've been following on YouTube, uh, in honor of Rabbi Reichik's Shloshim, tonight is 30 days since his passing. So we did a special class over there at Levi uh, Yitzchak Shul. And now I'm over here in our regular spot. It's an hour late, an hour and 15 minutes, but yeah, we're ready to go. Tonight's class has been sponsored by Mrs. Um, Miriam Fishman. This is in honor of her mother. This yard is going to be on Sunday. Batya Rachel Bas Shmuel Hirsch. May her neshama have a great aliyah. May this special class carry her soul the greatest of heights. Channel lots of brachas to you, Mrs. Fishman, for you and your family. Only simchas and happy, happy occasions. Okay. Batsi is connected to this week's parasha because she's the one who pulls Moshe out of the water. And we're going to learn now a discourse about Moshe Rabbeinu's neshama, about drawing Moshe into the world. What does it take to bring Moshe's neshama into the world? Now, this discourse that I'm going to teach is from the Rebbe Rashab, Fifth Chabad Rebbe. It's printed in the book Sefer Marmarim Tafresh Aryan Tess, called Teres, on page Kuf Ayin Ches. And it starts with Vayeda Cheshme Beis Levi. Now, I'm going to make a confession over here. I didn't prepare this discourse at all. Now, I did, I was intrigued by this idea of the marriage of Amram, Moshe's father, with Yocheved, and how the Pasuk describes it. And I found a discourse from the Tzemach Tzedek, the grandfather of the Rebbe Rashab, the third Chabad Rebbe, talking about this idea of Ayelach Ishmei Beis Levi. I learned that discourse. I'm not going to say well, but I did learn it earlier. And it was a short, but very cryptic, very concentrated discourse. And I felt like it was lacking explanation. Maybe if I had I studied it a few times, I would have hopefully cracked it open and it would have come together for me, but I felt very uncomfortable teaching it. So I thought to myself that there must be another discourse by what the later Chabad Rabbeim, which is probably commentary or more expansive on what the Tzemach Tzedek says, as it is known that the fourth Chabad Rebbe, Reb Shmuel, the Tzemach Tzedek's son, and the, third, and the fifth Chabad Rebbe, his grandson, many of their discourses are be based on his father or grandfather's Tzemach Tzedek's memory. So, and indeed, I found in Tafresh Ayin Tess from the grandson, from the Rebbe Rashab, um, I found a discourse which, as I scanned it quickly, um, discusses those very ideas that his grandfather discussed cryptically, but more in expanded. So I didn't learn this one, but I hope that the little bit of prep that I did in that discourse will hopefully lead us through. It's a little late tonight, and I'm a little exhausted, so we're not going to learn too much. We're going to continue next week, but let's see how long we will last. Here we start. So the Torah relates that a man from the house of the Levite family 
um, a descendant from Levi, which is the third of the tribes, um, went and he took the daughter of Levi. So it's a mysterious marriage over here. It doesn't give us the names of who they are. You would think that you're going to write a biography of, of the primary um, player, the primary uh, hero, or the primary, uh, um, I don't say actor, because it's not an act, it's uh, uh, the per, you know person in the entire uh, biblical narrative, which is Mo Moshe, Moses, you would think that it would give us some really good background on his parents. Yet the Torah does it. It tells us a man from the house of Levi went and he took a daughter from Levi. And they married. So the question is, we need to understand. Why doesn't it tell us who they are? Now we know that the father is Amram. He was the leader of the Jewish people. So it wasn't like he was, you'd think maybe he was an unknown person. Maybe he was some, you know, uh, shoemaker, uh, some uh, smith. You know, many times great souls come down to be the children. Like Amram was the son of Terah. You know, not 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 uh, to have a great person. That, that's why we don't talk about him. But we know it's not the case. Amram was the leader of the Jewish people. He was like the grand rabbi of the Jewish people during the exile. Um, his son is is his wife, Yocheved, who also goes by the name of Shufra in, in our pasuk. Um, she is actually the daughter of Levi, so she's pretty old. She was actually, according to the sages, a hundred and thirty years old during this time. So you think the miracle of Isaac being born from Sarah being 90 at the time of her birth, this is 40 years older. She just doesn't say that she was barren. That it doesn't say it's not that she wasn't. She wasn't barren. She had children. But at this age, every woman should be barren. Anyways, um, but she's the daughter of Levi. So she's a very prestigious uh, woman. She was born as the Jewish people entered into the walls of Egypt in between the walls, and she's like, as discussed in many places, she's the facilitator, she's the connector, she's the one who enables, that's why she, her son is the redeemer, because she has her antenna um, 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 connected to the pre-exile, so she's able to feed the Jewish people the strength during the exile, not to be crushed by the darkness of the exile. But that further begs the question, why don't we mention neither her name or her husband's name? This is like the greatest rabbi and Rebetzin of all time. And they have this awesome son, Moshe, and, we, and yet we don't, we don't, we don't identify them. Look at Achmanides, or over there he offers an explanation. The God, which I think he offers an explanation. The Gam, I don't know what the explanation is because I didn't look it up. The Gam, Also, we need to understand um, why, when we do say who he is. A little bit we know about him is it is that is that the one feature we do say about him the one identifying mark is that he is a man from the house of Levi. Okay, what's this? What does it mean? A man from the house of Levi. Now, what does it mean? Bas Levi, the daughter of Levi. Now, she was actually the daughter of Levi, but why is that emphasized? And why is this important for the birth of Moshe? Why is this general idea important for the birth of Moshe? And he has to give us this whole introduction of Ayelachish. You can start, in other words, it starts off that they went and they got married. As opposed to um, a baby was born to this family. 
What's this whole idea that we start, we're reversing. Now, again, this couple was married a long time earlier. They had already two children earlier. Yes, it's true. They got divorced. Um, or I don't know if they got literally divorced or at least they separated because there was a decree that um, all the babies would be murdered. So Amram didn't want babies more to be born, which would bring about the murdering of all these children. So in order to prevent this, he decided to separate the men from the women. If the men will be separated from the women, there won't be any babies. And this was his, his thought of saving the Jewish people. His daughter rebuked him. She was a little girl. She's three years old or six years old. And she rebuked Amram. And she said, you're even worse than Pharaoh. Pharaoh only wants to kill the boys. You're killing the girls too. Because, and, and Pharaoh at least lets them come into this world. Yes, they get killed, but at least they come into this world, which is very special. And you prevent them from even coming in here like abortion is horrible and you prevent you stop the birth even before even before conception that's even a bigger disservice in any case she encouraged her father to remarry her mother and that's what he did yeah okay so it's a nice story but why is this important for the birth of motion in Hashem Levi so now if we're, when we're speaking about the birth of Moshe, we're identifying his parents as a Levite family. And we mentioned it twice, both by the father and by the mother. So we, in order to get a better understanding, we first understand the quality of being a Levite. What's the idea of Levi? Hashem, Levi, the name of Levi, this is what Leah, Leah said, the wife, the wife of Yaakov, remember there was a competition amongst the sisters, Rachel and Leah, Rachel and Leah in which each one wanted to be the primary wife. And Leah, Leah felt very, very under, under or undesired because she ultimately tricked Yaakov into marrying her. He never was really interested in her. And therefore she wanted to compensate for her lack of favor, being favored by her husband, feeling almost like the secondary wife and very uncomfortable in that. She felt that Yaakov really, really, really wants to have children. And because he knew that he's going to be the father of the Jewish people and he's going to have 12 tribes. So they've started having this, this children, this population, this uh, um, uh, race of who's going to have more children. And she really had, she took a very big lead both from the beginning and she had the majority of the children. Half of the tribes come from Leah. So she had one son, Ruvain, and she had Shimon. And when she got to the third one, she was so excited. She said, now my husband is going to accompany me because I gave him already three children. What does that mean? She thought that her three children, I filled my full portion. She knew that Yaakov eventually is going to have four wives. At this point, there was only two wives, but she knew already with prophetic vision that Yaakov, her husband, was going to have four wives. The Jewish people are going to come from four mothers. And therefore, she now, if, if they were divided equally, three to each. So she said, now my husband is going to be fully attached to me because I fulfilled my obligation as a child, as a childbearing woman to bring him all, at least my portion, I gave him all the children I can possibly give him. She didn't even know that she would actually give more than what she was required. And so she said, my husband will accompany me. And on a more simple uh, explanation, is that when you know when, when as long as a, a woman has two children, she can she can you know she has a double stroller, she can manage by her. Excuse me. She can manage by herself. 
But now that she has three children, her two hands are occupied. She needs her husband to come along with her. He's going to hold one and she can hold two. Whatever, whatever the explanation is on the Apam, you love it, Ishi alive. But obviously, if Levi is called by that name, it doesn't mean just that it's describing her relationship with her husband, but it's actually, you know, you know, you have to give your children a name which suits them. Now, even though you don't know much about your child when they're at that age, we name our baby boys at the brisk when he's eight days old. Baby girls are named sometimes really earlier. So uh, how can you name your children with a name that spiritually fits the spiritual dynamics of the child, of the soul? You don't really know much about your children's soul. You pray for guidance from above. And we know that God sends his inspiration to the parent to pick and choose the correct name for their children. Um, that suits their, their nature. But where the Torah gives names, and when, when she says that my child is going to be called so-and-so because now my husband is going to love me, it seems a little selfish. She seems to be so self-absorbed. She's not considering her child. She's only considering what she gets from her child. And we know that that's not what a Jewish mother is all about. Jewish mother, any mother, especially a Jewish mother, is known to be very, very devoted to her children. So how could Leah do that? So you have to say that she wasn't just talking about herself and her husband, Yaakov. She's talking about this child. That the character of his soul is that he brings about the union of my husband to me. Now, in the broader sense, me is not just referring to her, it's referring to all of Israel, which Israel is the soul of the world, so really it means with all of the creation, all of existence. And my husband is referring to God, who's the husband. And this time my husband will attach himself to me means, in the broader sense, that this the boy will bring about the greatest attachment of God to the world. And that's the meaning, he love it, he will accompany me, he will become attached to me. And we see that that really is the story of the Levites. The Levites were the ones who officiated in the temple. And primarily through, now first of all, the Kohanim also come from the Levites, from the Shevet Levi. So both families, Kohanim and Levim, which we know that those who are, those who officiated, those that they were the, uh, the, the servants in the, in, the, in the temple and the Beis Amigdash. And we know the temple is the place of connection between God and the world. So by the, through these Levites, through these greater, these Jews on the higher spiritual caliber who are able to connect Hashem to the world, they're called Levim. And now it, it manifested also that Yaakov, who's her husband, will, as a result of this, feel a deeper connection to his wife. But that's just a micro of the macro, which is referring to the greater relationship between the masculine and the feminine, which refers to God as the male and we as the female. And Levi brings us about, and who is one of the, the greatest children of the tribe of Levi? We're going to see is Moshe. And what does Moshe do more than any other human being until Mashiach is that Moshe brings about the ability for us as tiny, human, finite beings to attach ourselves to the infinite one, blessed to see. So we make that attachment through following the ways of Moshe, through studying his Torah and doing the mitzvahs that Moshe gave us. So that's the idea of Levi. Okay. We need to understand. What's this idea? Your love is My husband will be attached to me. Now it's interesting. What does it say? She says, My husband will be attached. That's what Leah says. When it describes this person from the, from the house of Levi, Amram, the father of Moshe, when the Torah this week describes who he is, 
it refers to him as Ish mi base Levi. Interesting. So you're using the same, Yelava Ishi Eli, my husband Ish, it says. Now, a husband is not always called Ish. Sometimes it's called Baal. It means like someone who owns me, Baal. Over here, we say Ishi. What we're going to see is the difference between Baal and Ishi. So the idea of Ish, where, where husband and wife are standing equal, that's what we're going to see in the Mimer. It's a certain equality between between the husband and the wife, as opposed to the general idea where the man is standing much higher than the woman in the sense that he is the bestower and she's the recipient, which that's the dynamic of creation until Mashiach comes where God is the bestower and we're the recipients and we're much lower than him. A time will come when we'll be equal to God because the godliness in us will be revealed and we will stand face to face. And that's when we're called Ishim, my husband, that's a certain qualities we're soon going to see. And that's the full, complete attachment. That's the end result of creation of where the world reaches is a complete attachment with God. And that's what Leah said. And what does it say over here? Ishmi base lady uses the same term. That's something interesting. In Exhibit as an apostle. Now, this concept of attachment is also something which is related to the days of Mashiach. We know that all the good deeds that we do is going to lead to the days of, the, of Mashiach. And the days of Mashiach, we're going to have a big feast. And at that feast, one of the main features of the big feast is that we're going to have a whole lot of good sushi. We are going to have this big fish that's called the Liviyasan fish. And that's this enormous fish that has been prepared for this great feast. Fish and this big ox and a lot of good wine. Now, this is all true. I am never, ever going to give up on that fish. I'm a big fish eater. <laughs> and we're all waiting for that huge big slice, whether it's going to come to us, whatever kind of fish, whatever kind of dish it's going to be, I'm sure it's going to be great, prepared by the angels. Who knows by who it was prepared? It's going to be uh, incredible. But obviously, we, we did not suffer through thousands of years of exile. No matter how, how good of a piece of fish you're going to give me, that's not going to justify. So obviously, when we talk about the fish, it has a much deeper level. And this, this is like the great you know, uh, 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 amazing uh, reward that's going to come in the Messianic time. We're going to eat, we're going to have a feast, and we're going to eat, we're going to roll out this big fish. Um, and that's going to justify the entire blood-soaked, tear-filled um, 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 uh, darkness and suffering period of thousands of years. So again, we have to say that this is also metaphoric. Again, it's both in the literal, but also metaphoric. And what does that mean? When Mashiach will come, we will then enjoy the feast, is we will then see what we've accomplished in all the years of darkness, through all of our human struggles, through all of our difficulties. And when we were able to rise beyond the expected natural state, and we were able to do the godly thing, and primarily we were able to attach ourselves to God. And when Moshiach will come, we will find a world perfectly attached to God as a, as a, um, as a result of all the work that we've done. It's the culmination of all the work we've done. And that's the feast. And we're enjoying what we've done. And we will have a Leviyasan. Leviyasan, the root of the word Leviyasan is Levi, which means attachment. We're going to experience a Levite world or a fish world. 
what's the thing about fish versus humans or land mammals and land creatures? Land creatures are disconnected from their life source, which is the earth. We all live by earth. Earth creates our food and our sustenance. We couldn't live without the sustenance from earth, but even more so, earth gives us oxygen because the oxygen comes from the trees, which all of that is produced by the earth. So we are very, very much dependent on earth, yet we live above the earth, and sometimes we can go away from the earth. We can go on an airplane and go far away. We can go even out of space. But sea creatures must, they live from the water, and they always attach to the water. So in general, the state of attachment and disconnect, life on earth is more of a life of disconnect. Life in the sea is a life of connection and of attachment. Within the sea creatures, the most attached creature is the Liviasan fish. So when we say that when Mashiach comes, we're going to have a Liviasan, we're going to enjoy the Levi state of complete attachment. And that's why the Levites, who, who are the cousins of this fish, spiritual cousins of this fish, they, they don't live in the detached world. That's why Rambam tells us that the tribe of Levi were consecrated to be act as the, as the uh, leaders of the Jewish people, the rabbis and so on and so forth. The priests, the holy men, the clergy, as opposed to the people that, were, that live more in the world, the, the, the Levites are a notch above the world because they're the idea of Levi attachment. So he makes it, so the verse says about, about this Leviosan fish, Leviosan, this Leviosan you have created, the Sachik boy, to play with it. Isn't that crazy? God created the Leviosan to be entertained by it. Omar Azal and the sages tell us that if he is one of the most fascinating things about the sages, they're awesome. The sages give us God's schedule. Imagine being able to look in Hashem's daily planner. <laughs> What's God's daily planner? The sages took a peek into God's daily planner and they saw kind of how he spends his 9 a.m., what he fills, what are his appointments, 9 o'clock, 10 o'clock. Isn't it cool to be the sages that they have inside information in God's, they took a peek in God's planning book. Any case, it explains the hours of what God does. The first hour, he does this. The second hour, he does that. The third. And the fourth hour, one of the most strangest things, he sits and he plays with the Leviathan fish. Now, go explain that. Obviously, we have to understand whenever the Talmud tells us things, the Talmud is speaking in cryptic language. The Ka is, is, is it's, you think, we think we know what it's talking about, but there are incredible cosmic secrets hidden behind every word over here. And we have to like strip it from its external layer and uncover its deeper understanding. Muhammad Azal and the sages say, if he is the fifth and the fourth hour, Yoshev and the Sachikim Leviyas and Hashem plays with the Leviyas. So what does this mean? What is he playing? What is he being entertained by the Leviyas? Well, Avon calls Ayesh Lahagdim, so to understand all of this with its preface. So we'll understand this all by first prefacing the idea of the, the descent of the soul into a body. Me and you, we once were in here. Our souls were not here. Our souls were once. Soaring in heaven on the most spiritual levels. And then we find ourselves suddenly incorporated in a body right down over here. This is a great descent. This that a soul gets enclosed and descends into this world. First of all, it goes into a body, a corporal body. That's number one. And that is a very already considered a prison for the soul. And not only that, the Bahamas. To add to that, we also are covered up with an ego. And the soul is wrapped 
in a spirit, but a dark spirit, a spirit that is very stubborn and only wants to know itself, doesn't want to think beyond itself. And then a shaman is a luminous being, a, a very a divinely inspired being, whose entire being is to attach and to cleave to God. And yet now it finds itself surrounded by these very, very dark walls of separation. The Neshama, before it comes down in this world, as it is above, in the supernal realms above, and we know the four worlds, the highest of the four worlds is called Atzilos, the world of emanation, and that's where our soul comes from, a world that's perfectly divine. Um, we say, what do we say about our Neshama? Neshama Shemesata, be the soul that you have given to me, Tahira, she's pure. What does that mean? The soul, at when she's in heaven, is in the state of optimal purity. And lumen, lumen, means clarity. It's clean, clear. There's no, there's no static. There's no blurriness. There's no fog. Everything is clear. In other words, it's in touch with absolute reality. Because the inner light of the soul is unobscured. Every soul, it's, it's, it's essential light. It's a piece of God from above. It's an incredible light. And because the soul itself is open and not constricted, but revealed, so the soul itself is a recipient from all the greater lights, all the powerful divine lights, illuminations, and the highest from the highest infinite boundless revelations of the divine are revealed in, in the neshama, the Mazlai because the our root of our soul that is up there. Now we understand something. When we say the soul, neshama comes down, it means the soul extends itself down here. It doesn't mean that the soul departs from up there. So there's an upper part of our soul that always remains in that pure state. And on that we say that even when we're down here, our mazel sees. The mazel refers to the part of the soul that's up there. So this idea he tells us is that there is a certain at that level the neshama is unobscured. And what does it see? It sees, it doesn't, see, we, even when we study about the divine, we just study about godly, we, we read descriptions of the divine, but we don't know its substance. We have no clue what the substance of divinity is. If we would know the substance of divinity, we would never be able to sin, we would never be able to distract or be distracted even a second from the divine. It would be so gravitate, gra it would be such, it would have such gravity, such an intense, it would suck us up completely in its truth. It would overwhelm our senses completely if we would experience the, the, the substance of the divine. But we don't. So we only can talk about it, but not it. And because we can't really experience it, so that's that, but our soul up there it's not enclosed in a body, can see the substance of the divine. And that's incomparable, higher than any form of spirituality that we can experience in our consciousness while we're in a body. It's incomparably above. And that's why he's explaining that itself is a horrific descent. The fact that now we find ourselves so blocked. So number one, she experiences all, all, all light. She sees it. She's fully exposed to all revelation. In addition to that, her ability to conceive and understand intellectually is also on the sharpest, highest levels. So to her grasp, 
she comprehends and understands the substance of the divine intellectually as well. What does that mean? Just like there is so much divine revelation, there is such an incredible purity and, and clear divine revelation in the divine attributes, which are also called kalim, their vessels, in the containers, in these huge super mega containers, which are vessels that are recipients of the light. They are perfect recipients, perfect vessels to receive the light. And they can internalize it. And, and really, so too the soul when she is. And Atsilos is also receptive in the same manner of such lights. But then when the Neshama comes down below, she gets darkened and blurred. Her light. First of all, the internal light of the soul gets dark. The soul is not aware of her own godliness. That kind of the, 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 the inner brightness of the soul is dimmed. And because the soul's in own internal uh, illumination is dimmed and hardly felt very, very little. So So as a result of this, She's also not a recipient of the great lights from above. Very limited in her capacity. Her capacity shrinks dramatically. And because her own light is not on, so the illuminations from above are also barely felt in the soul. The Because even on the highest, on the very, very lofty souls, who are able to that do experience the vision of the divine, there are very high souls that do experience godly vision. He says, number one, we don't have any real, true, real visual experience. If we say there is high souls, there is some concept of they can visualize, it means with their mental eye they can visualize, but they can't literally see like we see with our physical eyes, obviously, yeah, we, we, they, they can't see the divine in that way. They can visualize it in the eye of their mind. They can be as if they're seeing it, but it's as if they're seeing it, not literally seeing it. So number one, the vision of the soul is completely cut off when the soul is in a body. Unlike the soul when it was in heaven, which it had a crystal clear vision of the, of the infinite. Now she doesn't see if at the best, if it's a very high soul, you can have a mental vision. In the eye of the of the seichel that's in the heart, the inner core of the heart, which is interesting that he associates the seichel to the heart, is chazakula. Over there, it's I guess it's a, a term in the Zohar. Over there, everything can be seen. But this is not considered, it's not only where you're seeing, it is what you're seeing. Because the real idea of seeing means to be able to see it as it is. Once you're already taking, uh, 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 comprehending it through your mind and visualizing it, it's never it. It's already some kind of interpretation of it. Even though we're talking about vision, that's the reason we're emphasizing vision. It says if you're seeing it, it's not like understanding, which understanding is the idea of you understand something is you don't see it. You just understand it. 
you're you're making it up in your not making it up, but you're you're putting it together through your mind as opposed to seeing it. So that is a very great um, uh, difference in those souls that we say that they can see, which means it's more than just a comprehension. But because those souls are in bodies, it's not real, real vision. And therefore, it means they don't encounter the substance of the divine. And that itself, just losing touch with the substance of the divine is already the biggest fall one could imagine. But now he says, okay, if everything else at least in the soul would not have been touched, if the drama, if the descent, if the compromise on the soul would be just blinding it, but everything else would remain on par what it was before, okay. It would be bad, but it wouldn't be super bad. Now add on to that that all the other powers of the soul are oh so radically changed. And even the grasping in which we can study and learn, like we're learning tonight, we're learning mystical ideas in which we can get a grasp. It's still incompare, it's not compared to the way we saw and understood things before we found ourselves in our body. As our soul was above, we don't have a memory of it because we forgot, we have no clue. But our souls were once in, in such a magnificent place. Now, that's already the soul coming into the body, just being in the body. Once the body kind of like really takes, takes, takes hold of the soul and, 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 and like lays itself upon the soul, that increases the, 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 the physical, the materialism, the material experience onto the soul and that has a coarsening effect. That's what we always learn that we're supposed to minimize. We try to, we're supposed to try as much as we can to decrease our material pursuits. And that's not because we try to be holy or try to be pious. It's just because we want to, we just want to be connected. We don't want to lose, we don't want to damage. The more sensitive we become to the material and the physical, the more desensitized we become to the spiritual. The more we lose that ability to experience, the more we find things. So when the body really gets a hold of the soul, then the soul becomes so coarsened that the sensors of the soul become like the senses, become like the senses of the body, which means we start relating only to what we can touch, feel, and smell physically. And things that are more ethereal, things that are more you know, abstract and removed. It's almost like becomes very, even if we might, we believe that they exist, it's only belief and a faith. It's not like something like really real to us. This is all referring to the soul's experience, her reality. Now, the service of the soul as well, when the soul is in heaven, it's served. Everybody over there, of course, you're a servant of God. So the soul is on the highest level of service. That means it's worshiping of, the, of God and its commitment to God is very powerful. And it's way, way above anything that we can bring ourselves down here below. And even when we're trying hard and we kind of seem to be accomplishing and we reach kind of levels of, of, of devotion and dedication to God's will, it will still always be much less than the souls, the way the soul served God up there. Same to its service as she was above. Um, uh, Eliyahu and Avi says, 
by the life of God. He makes an oath that I, that I stood before him. So it's explained, what does it mean that he says that I stood before him? When did you stand before him? Referring to Elijah and Elio and Abiz Neshama before he came down into a body. And that's when he stood before him. Standing means standing like a servant. It stood with love and fear. And the soul was in the state of perfect nullification and surrender before God. It was in a state of complete abnegation. It had no ego at all. And if there was any ego, it was completely surrendered to God continuously. When the infinite one blessed is he. And this is when the neshama before it came to Rabbi. Now we're going to contrast that with the soul once it comes down. But when the neshama comes down below, once it comes down below, it's, you can't compare it at all to the way she was before. As stated in Tanya, chapter 37, that even the perfect tzaddik, imagine if, you know, I'm not a tzaddik, and I think most of us are not tzaddikim. There are a few great tzaddikim, righteous, pious people. And these righteous, pious people who do not detach themselves ever, they concentrate, they're always mindful of God. They never forget, even for a moment. So even these righteous tzaddikim who serve God all the time, with awe and with love, and a very high level of love. There's two levels of love. There's a love where the person that's loving is on a level where he's still far from the thing that he loves. And therefore, the form, the, the experience of the love is a love of yearning, where you have a burning desire to get close. But the very fact that you're burning is because you're at a distance, and that's why you want so much to get close. A higher level of love is a love of pleasure, where you're close to the one you love and you're just delighting. You don't feel anymore the, the burning to get close because you're there already. You're just in this deep connect state of deep satisfaction and delight. So we're talking about certain people who serve God 24-7 all the time, but they always have a fire burning in them because they can't, they don't they want to experience the divine, but they're not there yet. And then there is a much higher level of service of people that are there already and they just quell in the divine. They experience this great ecstasy in the divine. So we're talking even these people, imagine, who notwithstanding the body are able to attain such a high level. Yet even them, as great as it is, it's a far cry to what it was before they came out in the body. You can't compare it at all. Before he came down in the bottom. Now me and you, we couldn't have figured this out because we have no memory of what was before. So we have to, we have to uh, consult with the masters of the soul. The Alter Rebbe, they knew the soul before it comes down and they're telling us that you should know that even if you're going to achieve perfect connection, there's no way it's anywhere close to the bodiless soul the weightless soul when it is in heaven. And that is true even on the highest levels of souls. Even they are diminished when they come in the body. Especially when it comes to the average, to the average us, the regular, the Joe Schmoes, if you call them, the, the regular everyday guys. 
that their love and fear, even if we do etch out a little, even if we do from time to time manage to experience, to squeeze out a little spiritual juice in our soul, which we experience a little bit love and a little bit awe of God, can't compare it all to the way it was. And even when we do attain something, it takes enormous toil in order to experience that. A lot of work. Because otherwise we experience the loves and the passions and the fears of worldly things. To be able to lift ourselves up and experience the love and fear of God. It's an enormous amount of work. It's, it's an enormous amount of labor, which the souls in heaven instantly experienced it and they, they can accelerate the work and labor that they also work hard, but the work and work that they do is to propel the soul higher, higher, way above and we can barely squeeze out a little love and fear. So what does that mean that our descent in, into a body is enormous? It's very big. So then, obviously, we have to ask the question. If the soul coming down in the body is what? Experiences such a yurida, such a descent. So what's the purpose? We would think that, you know, you create something, you want to improve it. Why is God creating us? And then, and then lessening, not, not, not adding. We believe he's a good God, right? So he wants to make things better, not worse. But then he, he, he really, really suffocates. Literally, this is called suffocation. This is horrible. But he's explained now that, that this descent is not only to the soul, but the general life force that there is in creation, the general energy. Our soul is a little piece of God coming to enliven a body. And that, and that in order to in, in, become inserted in a body and descend in a body, clothed in a body, it's a, it, 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 it's a very great descent. The same is going to explain in the macro. There is just like there is a soul to each and every one individually, there is a soul of the universe. And that's the divine energy that comes to create and sustain the world. That's the Shekhinah, that's the Malchus energy. And he's going to explain that energy too is radically diminished from what it was before. That means that the entire process of creation and bringing the world into existence is just a falling. It's not an advance, it's a degression. As explains, also, also in the um, divine radiance that becomes a source to the world, it's also one of the state of descent. Because the entire coming into existence, what's the base, the, the underlying power that creates the world is the lights of Atsilos, the lights of the world of emanation. That the coming into creation is from the lights. The lights are the power, the energy source for creation. What gives the lights, which are radiance of God, what gives them the power to create is because they are a reflection of the luminary, which is obviously the Hashem himself. Because there is Hashem's illuminations, and then there is the luminator. The illuminations, every illumination is similar and reflects the luminary. And since the luminary is a manipotent being, can do whatever he wants, and he has the creative power to create something from nothing, how does he actually contact the creation to create it? It's not himself directly. It's through his illuminations. And the illuminations are able to transmit that 
because they reflect the illuminator and therefore they carry over the quality and the power of the illuminator, which is the source itself to create. Because uh, he says the real power to bring something into existence from, no, from nothing, ex nihilo, is only in the essence of the, of the infinite. Because it is only he himself that has the ability to create something from nothing. Again, you have to appreciate and understand that God did not go to a junkyard and pick up you know, all kinds of, uh, all kinds of, you know, pieces, uh, pieces of iron and whatever, and create the world from it. There was nothing. And from absolute nothingness, he creates. So that ability to bring from, from nothing, you don't even have one tiny, tiny bit of something to expand on it and grow on it. You're just nothing. And to create, to make that leap from nothing to something requires an infinite power. And that's only God's infinite power that he's able to do that. So the harvest, yesh ma'avev samuchlet, the alkane, but the actual actualization, the actualization of this power of God himself to create the world is transmitted through emanations, through lights, which are just... Um, reflections or projections of that energy. But one second, if it's a projection, it's not him. And if it's not him, it doesn't have that power to create. The answer is, as we said earlier, the quality of light is that if the light would be something of its own, if it would pick up an identity of its own, if it would become something, then by becoming something, it would already be detached from the emanator, from the luminary, and it would not have that power because that power to create something from nothing is only in God himself. But because the notion of light is that it's not telling you about itself, it's not a self-entity, it's only revealing the source. So therefore, it's carrying over what the source is. And it can, re it can, it can channel the source's ability to create something from nothing. So it has the potency to be able to accomplish that. And that's why the light is able to bring into existence because it is always cleaving to its source. If the light becomes separated from its source, then it has it becomes powerless. It's entire like, like a ray of light, we know. It has to always be connected. You cut off the source, it, it disappears. Now, the coming into actual creation of the world. Now, first of all, Atsilus itself is not the essence of the divine. It's only illuminations of the divine. Now he's saying that even that, the original lights of Atsilus, they're not the energy that is the, the power in the cosmos to create. It has to be downgraded a second time. And that is that what? That, that the, the essential lights of Atsilos are not responsible for creation. It's only a ray of Atsilos. Shehu, shehi, mekol Atsilos. This is just a ray of Atsilos, of the world of emanation. This ray, which is now the source of the three lower worlds, Bria, the world of creation, Yetzirah, the world of formation, and Asiya, the world of the material. 
This light itself. Now let's understand something. These rays that are now coming out from Atsilas. And they're outward, they're coming down, so to speak, to, into a lower state to create. They were doing much better when they were still in Atsilas. They were much higher in Atsilas. Let's say every light, every light is, is, is really much stronger in its source. Once it's leaving its source, it's beginning to weaken. And if it's traveling a very long distance, it's getting quite a bit weaker. So that's the question. That's what he's saying. So therefore, all the emanations, especially the life force that is dealing with the finite world and the finite existence, is a very, very far away from its original source. And by that, it means it is already severely diminished. In the Rebbeinu, now to prove that point, he explains. In the Rebbeinu, he's referring to his great-great-grandfather, the Alter Rebbe, says... He explains that this ray and this uh, illumination that illuminates from him to bring into existence and to enliven the world and its creations, It seems like the the energy itself that's actually interacting with the world, that is a balgavul. It's a limited, it's a limited energy. It's not limitless. Because if it would be limitless, then it wouldn't be able to, then it wouldn't create a finite, limited uh, world. It, it, it's, it's, its consequential creations would be limit, limitless. The fact that it's sustaining and creating a, 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 a finite existence is showing and already indicating some, some measure of limitation on the light itself. Now, if it, if it has limitation, if it is limited, that means it's already dramatically and drastically diminished from when it was in its source because in its source it's limitless so it now it 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 it, it went through the ultimate transformation from being utterly limitless to becoming already some kind of a finite force and therefore in this ray that is already to a certain degree limited, it's possible to talk about numbers. And in the infinite light that's above this ray that is contracted. The Oirein Seif that's above this limited light and definitely what is the energy that descends to create Bri Yitzir and Asir, which the lower world. So that Oirein Seif who believe this part is without number. Vahakavana, what does that mean? The Biyava Oredat Mispa. That Bria, the actual three tiers of creation. Bria, the world of creation, Yitzira, the world of formation, which are all higher levels of existence. 
and Asiya, definitely our physical world, um, is 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 numbered, meaning it's it's limited, and therefore you can count count how many how many creatures there are. I mean, it's enormous, but there's still a number, and it's countable, which means the very fact you can count means you're dealing with finite measured entities. So he's saying, in all, not just in the physical, but in the spiritual dynamics too, there's angel, this angel, that angel, you can count them. Higher, but he's explaining even higher. In the life force that's flowing into this world, which we know that energy is particularized to each creature and each being in a different way, you can, it also relates to counting, to numbers. But the infinite, as it, as, as it above, the order itself, is outside the realm of number completely and of division and of separation. And therefore, not just the worlds itself of Briyatir and Asiyah, but also the illumination of Atsilus that comes down, Amitsamtsemis that becomes contracted Pashetis, and, 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 and expands to enliven these three worlds. In other words, the battery of the worlds, the, the soul of the three lower worlds, and Bibchinas Mispar are within, they're not real numbered, but they're within the context of numbers. But Atsilus itself, the world of emanation itself, which is completely divine, as it is not a source for the lower world, but as it is for itself, over there, it's beyond number. It's beyond all finitude. Comes out, what a, so what does that tell you? How much the energy force of creation has fallen from from its source. But first he's asking a question. We are deriving and we're saying now, he wants to prove that the energy that's in, in clothed in the world, that too has certain limitations. It's within the context of numbers. And how does he derive it? Because the creation is finite and and could be counted. So the, its life force is also that way. But he says, why, would, why are we doing a comparison? Maybe the creator is outside of the creation. And if he's outside of the creation, meaning he's not bound by the properties of creation. Indeed, he's creating a finite countable existence with our finite creatures, where there's idea of numbers. But the power that's emanating it and creating it is above it. So that's what he's going to prove. No, that that power is also kind of matched to a certain degree to the, and has certain of the properties of that which he's creating. He's asking first, we can ask the question, how can you compare the one who brings into being with the thing that's being created? Because really, you're going to ask the, this very simple question. If we're going to apply the properties of what is created and apply and slap that onto the energy force that's creating, then then how how will it remain an energy force to create? You see, the moment we're gonna we're gonna um, confine this energy to the very limitations of the creation that it's creating, that means it's confined and it's limited. Once it's limited, how does the infinite power to create? Especially since we spoke earlier to create something from nothing, that's an infinite power. 
and once it it has already um, a confinement, so you've lost it. So you have to say that this energy is not limited. He's kind of dancing the dance. He, he wants to show that it really is. How can it create a new creation? The brio is chaches because creation means something new comes in. Which is called something from nothing. And where he's going with this is as follows. He's asking a simple question. We have to say that there is this massive barrier between the, the, the consequential result, which is the creation, and the energy force that's creating. One is on one side and one is on the other side. And we have to say that there is, in a sense, no comparison between them. Because if it would be, in other words, if we would say that the energy, the creative energy kind of evolves into the creation, then it would make sense. Once something is evolving, at a certain point it's energy, and then when it evolves a little more, it becomes creation. If it would be this evolving stage, where this itself evolves, not that it creates something, but it evolves into something. If that's what it would be, then why would we be calling it creation? Creation means that, that, is, that it is producing something utterly new. If something is old, it's not creative. A create, we say creativity. It's something totally new. It's a new song. Or an artist, a creative person. If you're just picking up on old stuff, it's not, cre it's not creativity. Real creativity is something new. A creation means something new. If it's evolving, now, let's understand something. If we are saying that what? That the properties of limitation, of numbers, are already to be found in the, in the creative energy, that means that the two of them are not so far from each other. Then it's more like an evolving element. So why are we calling it then Bria, creation? If we're speaking about an energy that's creating, meaning that it is above and completely outside, it's otherworldly from the world. It's outside of it. And therefore, from it to the world, is this, is, is, it requires something utterly new. If that's the case, it would then seem to imply that he, the energy power, the, that the force that's bringing the world into existence is free from the definitions that are in the creation, including the definition of numbers. And if that would be the case, then we wouldn't have an argument anymore to say that the energy that is the soul of creation is radically diminished from, from, from before it ever left its source. It's not, because it still remains in this infinite state. But he wants to say that just like the soul is radically diminished, so too the soul of creation is also radically diminished. So, so that's where he's now juggling. How can we say, how can we pick it up on both ends? On the one hand, we say that the energy is not evolving. It's creating something new. That means it's outside of what it is creating. And therefore, unrestricted and limited and defined by the creation that it is creating. But on the other hand, we are saying that it is it is already restricted. So how does that work? So he explains. If he do, first he's going to explain the this concept that creation needs to that the, that that there is no continuum. It's something. This is creating that. It's a new chapter. It's something new. 
unlike where things evolve. There are energies, there are systems where things evolve from one into the other. If you do it, it's known, it's not like cause and effect. Cause and effect is not something new because the effect was always living inside the cause. It just wasn't actualized. It's like intellect and emotions. The way emotions are born from, from an idea. You have an idea, a conceptual idea, and then, and then a while later you're, you're excited about it. Now the emotion was born from the idea. So over there it's not something new. Because if you're you know, analyzing the, 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 the concept, the idea, you can find the emotions in the idea. In other words, in a subtle way, the very the idea that we're saying it's not something new because you can find the emotions in the intellect. It's just that over there, it's very subtle. Because over there, the what you sense is primarily the, the idea. So you don't sense the excitement so much. They're subtle, they're quiet, they're benign. It's as if, but once they go down into the heart, the emotion becomes highlighted and you're, 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 you're shining light on that, on, that, on that excitement. So it becomes kind of uh, pronounced and, 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 and uh, as, as an entity. And you feel it very strongly. That's when you're caught up in the emotion. And the reason that's triggering the emotion goes into the background. And the, and the, and the concept goes into concealment. That's not called a creation. It's nothing new. It's just an evolving. There's nothing new. But idea of creation. That actually is something new. Because you can't say that once upon a time, God was pregnant with the, with the world. That means that everything that exists on the outside was once included in him. That means he had heaven and earth and trees and monkeys and plants. And, and that was all inside of him in a subtle way. It was canceled in his infinite light. That's not true. God is simple with utter simplicity. He did not have all these pieces inside of him. You can't say that heaven and earth and everything that's, that's inside of them were included in their source. And they were just revealed. You might say creation is just that way. Everything was there. It was just in a not, not noticed. And then God emanated them outward so that they come out. Then we wouldn't call it creation. But that's not the case. They actually something new coming about. But if we said, Okay, once we've established that there is something new. But now, if there's something new, so now we have two, two aspects. We have the energy. And then the, what the energy creates, and that's the creation. But if we're going to say that the energy itself has already certain definitions and limitations, that means that it is a something. And if the source is also limited, that means that it is something. Every limitation gives, creates a certain specific something. 
So how is it that we say that the world is something new? It is something. It's like the worlds are coming, created yesh meyesh, something from something. What he's saying is, if we're going to argue, this is the argument that he wants to make. Again, where, where is he all going with this? It's, it's a lot of philosophy over here. But where he's going with it is, is, is as follows. At least it looks like to me. I told you, I didn't get to read this earlier. So this is my uh, first trial. But in any case, but what it, but I guess what it, what, what, what it seems to be implying of it is like this, is that... Um, A something cannot be created by another something. To be created, there needs to be a power which we call nothingness, something from nothing. Nothingness over here is not a is not a uh, is not a uh, fault. The nothingness that we're talking over here is actually a compliment. The nothingness means nothing that can make it into a thing. Nothing. It's not a thing. And that means the energy is not frozen and shaped and formed into something. It's free and therefore it's undefinable and that's why we call it nothingness. So that nothingness is the source of something. And because of its omnipotence, because it's not limited, that's why it can create something. So things can evolve from something to something. But yes, but a new creative something that has to come from nothingness okay so and that's where we find ourselves now in a quandary because we have to come back to the point and saying that the energy flow that's responsible that's creating and sustaining the world has to be nothing but if it's really nothing and that's why it can create something that means it is really infinite because some, but anything that has definitions is already something. So it has to be infinite. If it's infinite, then it, that, then it's not diminished. Then it's not, it's not contained within numbers. And he said earlier that the energy, once it comes down to create in the world, it's in a state of expression and an emanation outward into the creation. It's already it's already within the realm of numbers, which means you have to say that it's something. If it can be counted, which means it's divisible. So what makes one division separates from the other is its definitions and parameters. Once it has definitions and parameters, it's a thing. And a thing is already can't be a creator. It has to be nothing. But once we say, if we say it's nothingness, we free it completely from all definitions. Then it's not what he. That's not what. But he he, is sta he stated earlier a fact that the energy, cre the creative energy of the world has already been diminished into entering into the realm of numbers, and that's why it's such a big descent. 
but he's questioning that. He's, he's, he's fighting that, so to speak. Um, and that's why the sages say, If all those who come to the world would gather together, they couldn't create a knaf yitush echad. To originate from ex nihilo, to create from absolute nothing, you know, when they cologne, they have to take something. When you want to reproduce, you have to take a little bit of the DNA. You have to start with something. So the sages say a powerful statement that to create from nothing, you have nothing there, even if all the powers in the world, that means all, all those who come to the world, that everybody would contribute. Some people would contribute the physical power. Others would be contributing their, 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 their engineering power, their creative minds, their, this power and that power, their geniuses. Everybody would bring all the talent of the world and all the power of the world, which means all the powers of finite beings. They wouldn't be able to create even a wing of a mosquito. That's what it says. From nothing. It's only the power of the creator. So what does that tell you? Because those energies are all finite. They're all defined. And only an infinite being can do that. The power to create something is only with the power of the divine. Hakol Yachol that can do anything. He can create something. How can we say that the source that's creating is in a Bechina, it's in some element already within the state of death of, of limitation, limited. But, 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 but okay, so we have he's questioning that. Now he said, he, he, remember when he began the mimer and began the discourse, he started off by comparing the soul that's in the body to the soul prior to its descent into the body, when it was still included in its source. And now he's drawing a parallel, and he was showing that when it was there, it was like, wow, spectacular. When it comes down over here, it's like, eh. <laughs> it's like, it, it lost so much of that. And he's drawing a parallel. So too, if let's look at the entire world as a body. The soul of creation is the creative energy created. It too, when it was in a, its source, it was limitless. When it comes down to create, it's already somehow has already somewhat of a limitation. So now he's, he's questioning it at both ends, literally both ends. On the on this on this notion to say that the creative energy actually creates and sustains the world is limited. How can we say that? As he just described, you need an infinite power to create the world, not a finite power. So how can we say that the energy is limited? Now he's going to question at the very other end. You're saying that the these very lights, as they are still in the original world of Atsilos, which is the divine world, over there it's limitless. On that he's going to question. That's not really, you know, he's, he's questioning the two ends. Where we're saying it's limited, he's saying it's not limited. And where we're saying that it's utterly free from all limitation, he's going to prove that, I think, that's where I'm guessing he's going. There too, there is some kind of definition. It's also not understood on the other end. This that's above this limited light, to create and sustain which we say has no number. What can you say that? We know that in Atsilos, the world of emanation, we speak about 10 sephiros. So we're speaking about numbers and we're giving you a specific count of 10. 
It's 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 ten ten spheral, ten attributes. And every number is already a limitation. The Kosh can assess any number with it, even if we would say infinite number. But still, that's already the very fact that you can division and divide and differentiate one from the other is already showing a limitation. A seamless, a seamless in, infinite energy has no pieces, nothing you can count. And especially if you're here, not just we're giving a specific account, counting. Kosh can assess spheres. As it says in the book of formation, it gives you it, that these number is accurate. It's 10 and not 9. So on the other hand, on the very high level of Atsilus, which we're trying to say is really infinite because we're juxtaposing the Atsilus to the energy comparing the two. And we're saying this is limited compared to that, which is infinite. But over there too, we're saying it has some limitation. Because every number is Hagbala. Okay, there's one word over here that's throwing me off. And it also has 10. Indian who the idea is as follows. So this ancient philosophical Kabbalah book of Rameir ben Gabai called the Avodah Sakodesh. Over there he says an interesting idea. He says the the infinite one is the perfection of everything. And just like he has an infinite power, you have to say that the infinite one, blessed is he, cannot be only have the ability. You can't say that he can, that he's only infinite and not, he doesn't have the power to, to limit and to produce limitation. Because if you're going to do that, then that itself is putting a limitation. Because you're saying that he cannot limit. So he would be too infinite. And that itself would then be the defining factor. Is that he's defined as being infinite. So in order for him to really be infinite, he has to have within his infinity the capability of restricting. That's what it says over there. If you can say that he only has limitless power, and he doesn't have any finite power, so then you are taking away of his perfection. Okay. Now, but let's understand something. That power, as it is, the, the finite ability within the infinite, is it something separate in him? He has two powers. He has the infinite power and the finite power, then you're making him a being of, of certain powers, this power, that power. 
And that itself is already putting him in the realm of numbers. You can count this, you can count that feature, that feature. That's not the idea. The idea is he, that he is infinite, truly infinite. And because he's truly infinite to so anything, Infinity, you have infinity. You want finite, right? And comes out that the power, the on that level, the infinite and the finite are, are the same point. It's it's not two separate things in him. It's one limitlessness, one omnipotence. Oh, that's that's in its in its in its real real quintessence. Where, however, does the power of his limiting power start to become noticed and expressed as a specific power. That's in Atsilos. In Atsilos, the first time you can see his finite abilities in play is in the world of Atsilos. This is all taken back to what this says in this book of Odessa Kodesh. The first indication of the power of finite that is, and Akalim the Esospheris Tatsilos. These are the vessels of the Sphirot of Atsilos. The, the lights are still completely infinite, but the vessels, the containers of the world of Atsilos, they're still divine. And that's him showing kind of a finite power. And that's the limitation of Atsilos. That's that's only in the vessels, not in the energy. But the light itself, there there's no difference between the light of Chachma, the light of wisdom, and the light of Chesed. Over there, the light is equal in all of them. So it comes out like this. He asked the question over here, is Atzilus infinite? Which he said earlier it is. But then he asked, well, there's only this, 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 this spherot, and there's 10. So the, what he's trying to answer now is depend on what we're talking. In the containers of Atsilos, in the vessels, yeah, it's fine. There we're speaking of some kind of a finite. But in the lights, it's truly infinite. How do you see that? Because the light that's, in, that's going through all the vessels, the same light. Not over here, this light, if the light itself would be differentiated, then there would be character in the light itself, not in the container. Now, that's for sure. Once the light is funneled through the vessels, the, the, the restrictions of the vessels are planted on the light, at least in terms of the energy's effects. The effects of the energy is different, just like you see um, energy, um, a light, physical light going through, you know, different color glass. So red is going to produce red light, green, even though it's the same light, but in regards to its effect, it's going to be green, red, and yellow, like a traffic light. But the light is the same. You're not going to say it's a different color light. Light, that's really, it's just that it's going through the red, it's picking up that red. So the same is with all the lights of Atsilus. It's a simple energy. The or is only in the vessels. I know, Masha Atsilus, so this that we say that Atzilus is numbered, these are the vessels. We say Atzilus is really without a number, is in the lights. According to this, we can answer, we can reconcile. 
Now, for those who understand why on a lower level, where Atsilus emanates energy downward to become the actual creative life force of the three lower worlds, over there we say it's already with a number. What does that mean? The Malchus Atsilus. Because this descent of Atsilus into the next state to create the lower worlds, it's really that transmission is primarily a derivative of Malchus. Malchus is the last, the final sphere. And Malchus highlights very much the whole idea of Malchus is Kalen vessels. Even though there's light in Malchus as well, but the overpowering domineering element of Malchus is containers. Malchus is speech. Speech is all about the containers and the vessels. Um, where are we holding here? Which the Kalim is gavol, is a limited thing. But how can from the limited powers of Atsilas uh, come into existence the Gavul of Bri Yitzir and Asiya? I think he means this is real Gavul.
least I see where this, after another whole page of back and forth is where he concludes this idea. So you see from here that the power that's coming down is, has, has descended from its essential state. Anyways, it's pretty complicated. Um, and my head is not working good enough to be able to un, to un, to be able to demystify all of this. So by Ezra Tashem, we're going to leave this. Next week, Thursday night, I'm actually speaking somewhere at a at some kind of an event, but that's earlier. Oh, yeah, it's only at seven o'clock. So I should be back at nine to be able to continue. And who knows, we might even continue before Thursday. I want to really break break through with this because it seems to be a very, very powerful discourse. The, the, the nature of the Rebbe Rashab, of the fifth Chabad Rebbe, is that he gets more philosophical. Really, you know, but he brings you to, to a very, very, very clear understanding in these, in these, in these more abstract ideas. But we're going to need a little bit more time to work this out. Okay, we're going to leave it over here. Yeah, okay, that's it.